Have you ever had an idea for a new food product? One that is healthy, but also tastes good and fits any set of dietary restrictions or palate preferences. Ben Carnavale, food scientist, knows all about food product innovation, and chances are pretty good he's been involved in some of your favorite products on the market. My name is Molly Gallant, and you're listening to Food Focus, the podcast. In this episode, Mike sat down with Ben from Blend Tech Ingredients to talk more about food product innovation and how product development responds to local and global food trends. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Ben, thanks for taking the time. As you and I have not met before, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and what your day looks like on an average workday? Well, thank you for having me, Mike. My name is Ben Carnavalli. I'm a food scientist with Blendtec Ingredients. My day is mainly comprised of working with our clients and providing um, project-based solutions to some of their uh, projects uh, in product development. We do that using our skills in food science uh, as well as our ingredients to provide, like I said, simple solutions for our clients' expensive projects. You get a real insight into what people are doing in terms of product development. You work with clients to introduce new products to the market. How do you see things changing globally and in North America? And, and how does that really shape consumer food preferences? Or what do we see as new products coming to the market? Well, as global food is becoming more local, providing authentic cultural cuisine in the North American market as one of the major prominent new angles or new, new ways of working with innovative ingredients from around the world, we find that, you know, the global community being so local now with the cuisines that we approach everything as being culturally local. What do you mean when you say culturally local? That's a good question. Because we have become such a secular community, a lot of the uh, nuanced flavors and profiles that in the past we would be hesitant to try or, or work or palate towards have now become mainstays. You know, uh, a lack of a better term would be, they used to be like a limited time offer where people would try it and, you know, say, yeah, it's fine. But now we see that it's much more prominent. The best example I use is uh, Indian cuisine. You know, 30 years ago, you barely saw many restaurants that cater towards that, that cuisine. And now they're all over the place in the North American market. And as food becomes more local like that, we, we just tend to see be more... Uh, open to trying unique flavors and products from around the world. And, and it's probably very much creating hybrids as we, we see interaction between these different cuisines. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, I would say, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, you'd start hearing terms like Tex-Mex, which again was a minimal crossover, but hybrids are happening all the time where we're doing infusions of South Asian cuisines, European cuisines become hybrids uh, where you have products from, let's say, you know, Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe kind of melding together and creating a more palatable flavor profile for that, you know, demographic or geographic area. And again, as we are a Western secular community, we're finding that we get the best tastes of the world coming to us through the cultural, you know, profiles of the people that live here. So the things that you're seeing change? I mean, you're really at the forefront of product development here. Do you have any predictions for 2020 and beyond? So we do see a lot of 
pivoting towards plant-based. Um, it's something that our company has invested highly into, not just from a health standpoint, but from an environmental sustainability standpoint. We find that working with a lot of plant-based flours and starches really help, I guess you can say, bridge the gap between uh, a full carnivore diet and a, an omnivore or a vegetarian diet to a more flexitarian diet where people now have more options than just the you know meat substrates, for example. They have much more meatless options. Even if they are still meat eaters, they like to have a broader, I guess, option to their palates. Uh, we find that lots of nutrient-dense greens are coming to the forefront now. Um, you know, you've, you've heard of products like rapini, uh, broccolini and broccoli, but now we're starting to see that more and more our palates are getting geared towards them. And they're not just that, you know, vile, <laughs> vile veg anymore. They're actually part of great diets. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I was talking to a restaurant guy not long ago, and, and he highlighted that really vegetables are now to a significant degree at the forefront of the plate, not just because they bring some color in an Instagram world, but because on a relative basis, we're lowering, we're eating smaller portions of protein, whether it be plant-based or, or animal-based, we're paying more attention and to, to vegetables and therefore exploring more to, to get more diversity in our diet. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, perfect time to say that, was indicating Indian food, one of the greatest things about it is it is vegetable centric. You know, you don't need uh, a meat substrate to really make the uh, flavors stand out. It's one of the best uh, cuisines for people that are looking for a more vegetarian based diet. And that's where you see the explosion of a lot of these cuisines that again, you know, a few decades ago, weren't really uh, at, at that prominent stage in North American cuisines. Explore that a little bit more, this whole plant-based. We're hearing a lot about it. We're seeing restaurants talk about it. Is it just about, you know, the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Meat Burger? Or is there is there a wider range of innovation out there in the world? There is a much wider range of innovation. I, I believe that the reason the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat and those cool new innovations stand in the forefront is that you get a lot of these flexitarians, right? We were talking about uh, that group that's a hybrid between, you know, an omnivore and a full vegetarian. And this is the group that seems to be standing out when it comes to buying a lot of these meatless products. You'd assume that it would be a vegan community. And the truth is, vegans kind of know what they're looking for. And they, they, they're trying to parse out in the marketplace what they want and what they don't want versus flexitarians where they see meatless products and they kind of jump on there as whether it's an, um, you know, a trend or a mainstay. And so really the consumer base that is going after these plant-based products are this broader group of flexitarians, either be it for their healthy lifestyle, either it be for more sustainability or environmental purposes. But we find that that's the consumer base that is really attacking it. So when you talk about the Impossible Burger, it's not necessarily geared towards the vegans of the world. It's towards those vegetarians or flexitarians that have a broader palate when it comes to these products. It's interesting you say that. I think there's a couple of points that I would drill down there. I mean, first, not only do vegans know sort of what they're looking for, they are a relatively small segment of the market. 
Some might argue they're growing. I heard some statistics that the, the rate of which people are going vegan is pretty high. I've also heard that the rate of attrition is, is quite high. And they would argue that their influence goes beyond just the people who are vegan. But that not, notwithstanding that, I, w- I would say one of the things that is interesting is 85% of Canadians and in a survey that we did recently said that they are eating at least two, one meal every two weeks that doesn't have a meat protein as the main source of protein on the plate. So they are a big group. Do they look for something different than a vegan customer might? <sighs> That's a very good question. I think it kind of falls into two categories when it comes to plant-based products. And, and you hit on that. You know, those that want enhance uh, and celebrate whole plant foods and flavors versus those that are, you know, more mimicking the, the meat taste and want that almost sense that they're eating something that society deems as, you know, popular, such as the Impossible Burger. So it kind of silos into those two kind of categories. And I think that as we provide more options in plant-based products, you're going to see less attrition and more vegans come out and, and, and start buying within the sector. Like you said, Mike, it's a very good point. It is a small market. And the fact that the food industry as a whole is gearing toward that market or a very hybrid portion of that market is, is again, a big representation of where the food industry is kind of shifting towards. So I, I do see that even though it is a small group, they have a lot of breath, so to speak. They have a lot of power uh, from a consumer angle as we kind of trend towards more sustainable plant-based products. And I think one of the things, and this maybe is a nice segue into the next question. One of the things we're seeing is that there is no the consumer. There is no the flexitarian consumer. There is no the vegan consumer. All of them have different motivations and all of them have different sort of priorities and attributes that they're looking for. I, I, I think I heard it described once as, in the future, we are going to sell less of more things, that there's just going to be more diversity in the choice and more diversity in, in the products that, that were offered because we want different things. Does that diversity help or hinder the process of food product innovation? You know, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's bittersweet in the fact that, yes, these opportunities create major opportunities in food science for innovation. At the same time, it limits our creativity because of the minimal, like you said, the minimal amount of ingredients that we're, we're being able to use. So it, it, <laughs> we have to do, a, in the food science world, we have to do a much better job of you know, maintaining that flavor, that overall texture of the product that we're looking for, well, it's not off-putting people's, I guess you could say, palates. So even though everyone is kind of separating into tribes or silos, you know, the food community is trying to still create products that are palatable for the broader group, right? We, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to always uh, look at a segment that whether growing or not is still a very small portion. We want to kind of bring everyone into the fold, if that makes any sense. Well, I mean, from a, from a sales perspective, that makes sense. One of the challenges is then finding that combination of attributes in a food product that appeals to a broad enough audience to make it worthwhile. That's the, and that is the tightrope that we are constantly walking. One of the biggest comments that you're, you're going to see uh, over the next couple of years is maintaining not local palates, but also local ingredients. 
you know, we are a global community, but at the same time, a lot of consumers want to see their foods coming locally. And in a, in a market like Canada, it is hard to say the least to produce, you know, some of the exotic, unique products in the world. Obviously, with things like greenhouse farming or greenhouse growth, we, we are seeing different agricultural being produced in Canada, as you would know very well. So again, we're, we're trying to make things more local for the consumer at standpoint, but at the end of the day, it's going to need a global consensus on a total breadth of ingredients to be able to sustain the growing trend of having, for lack of a better, mimic what we're looking at in the global community. So you see, you know, Thai food, for example, that's sweet, that's salty, that umami notes. It's been around for a while, but now it's really, really popular. So you're starting to see other products being kind of infusing those Thai ingredients and still being North American, if that if that sounds like like a like a point of reference. So again, in the food industry, we really try to cater to the consumer, the public. At the same time, we have to ensure that we are not compromising the end goal of, of innovation and, and try to find you know that that new product on the marketplace. Well that, that's that's actually kind of neat. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier, and and you talked about silos a little bit. And and one place I think we're getting silos is this whole plant-based versus animal-based proteins has really become a, a bit of an us versus them in my perception. A, do you think that that's true? And B, do you think that that matters? A, yes, I do think that we're becoming more and more siloed when we look at animal byproduct versus plant-based product. I believe education has to be at the forefront of understanding the us versus them kind of comment that you made. I don't think it has to be disparaging. I believe that there's a place for both. Truth is, I like to present it as, you know, if you're looking for something that's more sustainable from an environmental point of view, then plant-based is truly a great option. It, it really resonates with people who are looking at that angle. However, if it's only for health reasons, then I think that you have to be more educated in the total breadth of proteins out there. Because the truth is, animal proteins are not bad for you. Animal proteins actually are a better, you absorb it at a better rate in your body than plant proteins. And plant-based have their problems. For a quick example, you know, we went very quickly with products like pumpkin and pea protein. And what we're finding from the science point of it is the lead content is higher than what most of us would have thought it would have been. So now we're having products being tested for high levels of lead where, you know, animal products didn't have that same problem. So, you know, every nuance or every new foray into innovation always has setbacks. And I think sometimes in the food industry, we go we go a little, you know, far on the innovation side because we find a trend that, that seems to resonate with the consumer without maybe doing the background science portion of it and the technical analytical work to see if it's actually conducive to the, to the industry and the marketplace. What's interesting is to hear you talk about sort of not only the analytical, but the maybe a little bit the art of blending ingredients and trying things that happens behind closed doors that people probably don't have a good sense of the work that goes into product development. Oh, I, I, yes, Mike, this is one of the major things. And I'll give you a quick example. You know, we have in the marketplace, and I'm not going to name any brands, but you have textured soy and textured soy has been 
you know, for the past two decades, the innovative product that you would use as a meat replacer. Meatless analogs would, would tend to have this textured soy protein or what we call uh, textured plant protein. Well, the past year, uh, I've been working in, in my lab and creating a new textured protein. And I've been using uh, a plethora of raw ingredients from pea to flax to hemp to faba bean to other pulse ingredients to try to find a good blend of proteins that would make a nice extruded textured protein that could not only mimic the soy, but act better. So, you know, to that, I created a uh, product that is a combination of hemp, barley, and faba. And when extruded, we make it into a, um, you know, for lack of a better, kind of like a muffin pan, we will make it into a ball, almost like a jackfruit. And the texture is almost ideal for shaved beef, for uh, mimicking uh, pulled pork. So one of the ones that we showed was a Philly cheesesteak that had this textured plant protein and we showcased it. And the first thing that the client said to us was using textured soy. And we said, absolutely not. We showed them the spec and they were very intrigued that we were able to provide an alternative to the mainstay product that you see in the marketplace. And that took, that took you know, six months of development. So it, it takes time. Yeah, that's interesting, and I'm going to ask you a uh, I'm going to ask you a question maybe that, that we didn't talk about in advance, uh, and you're welcome to defer if you like. I noticed you said a Philly cheesesteak that wasn't beef. That's one point of contention very much in the world is in in the livestock or the animal based meat versus plant based meat is the use of words. Should we be able to call it a Philly cheesesteak, or if it's from hemp and and uh, and some of those other uh, pea proteins, or is it a is it an analog and we should come up with another name? I'm not too worked up about the specific words, but I know some people are. Well, and you know what the the good example of that is milk, right? The dairy community, the CDC, especially in Canada uh, and and the uh, body in the United States, do not like the fact that almond and soy based. Milk products are allowed to be deemed milk. So just to pivot back to plant-based, you know, the truth is I had this conversation with, with a, a few vegan friends of mine before, and they made the comment to me and, and really opened my eyes that the reason that we use these terms is for societal acceptance. And it's the truth. Um, they want to feel like they're eating something that is regular, uh, if that makes any sense. They want to feel like they're eating. So when you, if you say, you know, uh, a plant-based uh, burger, you know, it's not a bad term. I don't think it's bad. If you say it's a burger, uh, I think they feel like they're eating something that everyone else eats. And like I said, to the vegans of the world, and I don't want to speak for them, I think that they're okay with uh, the nomenclature not being what it is. But I think the flexitarians out there want to feel like they're eating something that they always used to hear in the marketplace or they've always ate before. It makes that sense of belonging. If if, if that makes any sense. So, yeah, no, I, I hear you and I, and I agree. And I don't think generally people are confused, but, but to play devil's advocate, someone from the beef industry would say, well, some of those people will be confused and perhaps think they are eating a, a meat-based burger. Are, are, do you think there's a real risk of that? <sighs> do I think that there's a real risk of confusion? Um, I think that it can get, it can get cloudy. 
it can get a little bit muddled because we use these terms and there aren't, there isn't enough education on these products. So, and the truth is they, I, I believe sometimes the cloudiness contributes to the overall, like they want a little bit of that confusion. So you feel like you could be mimicking that beef. I, I understand that. And to be honest with you, I think that we are going to slowly gear towards listening to the industries like the dairy world, like the meat world and say, okay, we can call it meatless and just make it very prominent in the name. Um, I, I think that, first of all, it'll resonate with people that do not absolutely want meat, right? I think the people that are very, uh, that want to distance themselves from meat, saying meatless, uh, pronounced and open, I think will be a big, big uh, a term for them. Whereas I think the broader community still like to feel like they're part of this inclusive group that eat, you know, meat products or, or, or products that are very similar or mimic meat. So again, what is in a name? You know, this is a very good point, Mike. I don't know necessarily where the industry is gonna progress to, but I can say that the voices within the industry are against such naming and the consumer is for the naming. Yeah. So who wins? Who wins in that tug of war? I always say the consumer wins. Consumer is king or queen. Yeah. So I, I mean, I tend to believe that it's going to stay the way it is. Maybe some minor nuances on the labeling side of it, where maybe the health candy gets involved. Yeah, it's interesting. It could be a double-edged sword. In the, in the short run, it might be inclusive. But in the long run, if if it becomes something that we want to, like you say, meatless, and, and if that becomes an appeal, all of a sudden the industry might be wishing they were still included. Uh, so it'll be Exactly. <laughs> so as a food scientist, just as we wrap up here, what are some interesting food products you have worked on developing or, or things that, that we might see in a restaurant or a retail store coming to a neighborhood near us? Yeah, so we worked uh, very closely with one of our biggest clients, to make a cauliflower crust. Now you see that everywhere and everyone, and then I'm talking about pizza crust, sorry. Whether it's a pizza starter kit from the grocery store where you get to add your favorite ingredients, a um, food service application from one of your favorite pizza franchises, you know, you kind of see that in the marketplace. So that's, for lack of a better jump the shark <laughs> point of view. And in food, you're always trying to find that next one. So we've been working nonstop making different types of substate crusts because I love the idea of an all-inclusive pizza. I, 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 you know, it's a great product because it's wholesome. You provide a multitude of ingredients. So we've been working with this client to make three different product portfolios for some of the big grocery chains in the marketplace in North America. And one of them is right now we're working on a kale and feta crust. And it, it, it provides its own problems to create something with such a high moisture content that FedEx has. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, kale does create some issues as well when you're using an IQF, which is an individually quick frozen type of product. Uh, so you're not compromising on the flavor of that kale, but at the same time, it has that high moisture content. So product shelf stability is major. I can tell you that working with them and using various flours, uh, so not just the mundane potato and uh, rice flours, but using the barley and the faba again. I, I love garbanzo bean flour. We use those in conjunction and made a nice, rigid, crusty type crust that enabled that moisture to kind of seep through it and have a nice homogeneous product. So that is going in testing right now. Again, I look at it like a flatbread. I believe that you could eat it on its own, maybe drizzle a little bit of olive oil or balsamic on there and you have a, a wonderful like uh, appetizer. 
I do feel like we're getting more and more into these meatless products. So again, we just finished uh, a pulled pork uh, product for a client. Uh, again, we're using an extruded textured protein, a little bit different than the hemp. This one is primarily comprised of pea. Um, so a little bit different than the one that I was talking about, the Philly cheesesteak. Um, and again, where the flavor really comes out on this one is, yes, it's going to mimic the texture of that meatless or of the meat, but it's it's that sauce, right? It's, it's how good you're going to make that product taste with some of the added products. So uh, these are some of the things we're working on. And, and in that case, to a, to a significant degree, the sauce is so much of what the flavor is really the meat or the meatless is about texture. It is about mouthfeel and not so much about flavor in that circumstance. You got it. It's it's that it's that auto response that we get when we bite into it that says, yes, this tastes like what I'm used to or what I remember. Because like I said before, we're not gearing these 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 innovative products towards that vegan niche community. We're gearing it to that flexible community that says, you know what, maybe I don't want it for this reason, that meat product. Maybe I want a meat alternative. So if we can mimic that texture and provide that, again, that response for that that sauce, which is the exact same as the conventional one, you start getting more and more people kind of coming over to the side of plant-based products um, because they're more palatable for their for what they're looking for. That's really cool. Well, thanks, Ben. I really enjoyed the discussion. I learned something this morning, and I'm looking forward to trying some of the some of the products that you've talked about. Anything uh, before we wrap up? Anything you'd like to add, or that you thought I would ask and I didn't, that you think is worth mentioning, or? Well, the last one I want to just quickly mention is I, you know, for the past five years, for the past decade almost, gluten-free has been a huge, you know, first it was a limited time offer, then it was a mainstay, and now it's beyond, it's a multi-billion dollar juggernaut in the food industry. And so I, I, the bakery industry is is going back to its roots. And they're saying, you know, in the past, we used to have a plethora, a big breadth of products, and now we've kind of siloed them into, you know, gearing towards that gluten-free community and where I'm finding the artisan you know, those little bakeries are starting to get into is getting back to fortifying their their doughs so you know the, the term enriched was you know considered a good term in the 80s and 90s and then a bad term in the new in the new decades and so they're fortifying now with things like spaghetti squash they're fortifying with really cool legumes to make these artisan breads more nutrient dense and again maybe it's a, for another discussion I worked on a, on a Rapinian artichoke cornbread just to try to, again, get into this idea of a gluten-free, but provide a lot of flavor and texture. And it's, it's really resonating with the community. So, you know, gluten-free doesn't always have to be that death sentence for bread. I think that there's an avenue for both, you know, kind of innovations to, to, to work together. And, you know, I love bread and bakery products. I, I absolutely think that they're one of the best portfolios in the marketplace. And so seeing the bakeries really change and pivot towards nutrient-dense loaves seems to be a trend that we're going to see more and more in, in 2020 and 2021. Well, so there's lots to look forward to. Absolutely. Good. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for taking the time. And I look forward to another conversation. There's clearly lots more for us to talk about. 100%. Thank you so much for having me, Mike.
wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Foodfocus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.